Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palanker. Happy New Year to our many listeners and viewers around the world. Our New Year's resolution here at Media Path is to bring you even more quality guests and entertainment while sticking to a strict keto diet. But really, why make any resolutions? Resolutions only set the bar too high for us. We're starting the year with an abundance of interesting guests, three this time. First, we're going to meet Annie Yancey and Jess Thomas, who have written and produced a new film titled God in Salsa. It's a very sweet movie that hones in on ways of coping with grief and depression. And second, we're going to meet Dr. Logan Westbrooks. Dr. Westbrooks has been an executive in the music industry for 50 years, and he's co-written what I think is an essential book about the black music industry called Power 101, The Harvard Report, Soul Music, and The American Dream. He's been the brains behind some of the biggest acts in R&B music. Looking forward to Dr. Westbrooks in just a few minutes. And I want to read, you know, I love it when we have something to brag about. Yes, let's brag, Fred. Listen to this. We, we have a, a, a wonderful listener who has uh, a column. It's about being retired. And I'm certain he's directing this at me how did he write this while retired well uh if he's like me he's doing things in retirement for no money Mm, i see and here we go and and, you know his audience is my audience old people and their parents Mm -hmm. we want to take a minute this is his words now we want to take a minute to wish a happy new year to our listeners okay well i'll just read this and you'll bring in a team of experts to edit this however you want Okay, uh, here we go. Here we, I'm speaking on behalf of Media Path Podcast. I've been deputized. We want to take a minute to wish a happy new year to our listeners and thank you from the bottom of our hearts for supporting Media Path. We're so happy that you're enjoying the show. We're assuming you are because Weezy and I just, this is our favorite thing in the world. We're extremely pleased to be able to tell you that we've been charting on the podcast player and discovery tool, Good Pods, in the books and politics categories. And we're very proud of this. We're reaching number three recently in the politics category. Wow. I'm so proud of us. That's awesome, isn't it? Yes, it is. I would have brought cupcakes or something had I known we were doing this well. Listen, it's so wonderful that you guys appreciate the work we do incorporating political discussions into our media journeys. We have some really spectacular guests who are making important contributions in that space, like Brad Onishi and Dan Miller from the podcast Straight White American Jesus, authors like Ira Shapiro, and of course, Congressman Adam Schiff. And Weezy and I frequently recommend books, documentaries, and series that pertain to social and political issues. It also appears that the podcast search engine Listen Notes has our global rank in the top 3% of all podcasts. Wow. And that is also fantastic news. I would like to meet the guys who are translating our podcast into foreign languages. Does that get us into a good school? I, I hope so. <laughs> okay. My parents, just gonna, they're going to be so relieved. So thanks again to you listeners. We appreciate you and love you so much. And a little later in the show, we're going to have a special shout out to one listener in particular, Gary Chalk, who has reached out. Oh, he's the guy with the yeah. retirement thing. Well, that's Gary. good. Okay, now, now I'm, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be on the program here in 15 or 20 minutes. All right. We may All have right. you back, Fritz. All right. Wheezy. Yeah. For the love of God, tell me what you got this week. <laughs> well, I was watching If These Walls Could Sing. And it comes to us from director Mary McCartney, who once crawled along the studio floors as her parents recorded Band on the Run or, you know, a lot of other giant wings albums. Uh, For Mary, the floors and the walls of Abbey Road Studios are filled with both private personal memories and global historic resonance. Mary takes us through the nine decades of groundbreaking creative achievement, mining the memories of Cliff Richard, Elton John, Jimmy Page, Roger Waters, David Gilmore, Liam and Noel Gallagher, Celeste, Ringo Starr. Oh, and she may have had an in with Paul McCartney. Uh, The studios make their home within a nine-bedroom, 1831 Georgian townhouse at number three Abbey Road, located in the St. John's Wood suburb of northwest London. The home was purchased in 1929 by the Gramophone Company, and they began their endeavor to record music by constructing the world's first purpose-built recording studio in the large rear garden in 1931. Legendary works birthed at Abbey Road include The Beatles' Abbey Road, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, 
Be Here Now from Oasis, The Beatles' White Album, John Lennon's Imagine, and Aphrodisiac by Fela Kuti, a a Nigerian artist discussed by Dr. Westbrook, who's going to be coming up uh, in his book. And in the 80s, when business was waning, Abbey Road triumphantly transformed itself into a scoring stage, hosting the Raiders of the Lost Ark team and creating the John Williams soundtrack, followed by the Star Wars soundtrack with the London Symphony Orchestra and George Lucas. If These Walls Could Sing explores the breadth, diversity, and ingenuity of Abbey Road Studios. Conversations with the artists who have learned their craft and made their histories there reveal how performers, producers, composers, and the dedicated engineers and staff of Abbey Road found and established their voices and communities within the walls of the building. Interviews are woven into the film with vivid archival footage and session tapes, giving us all access to these famously private studios. It's all a joy to watch and hear. If These Walls Could Sing is on Disney and Hulu. So you taught my middle child, Corey, how to play guitar. I did. And so my two sons, at the end of their high school experience, I gave them the opportunity to choose any place in the world they would like to go for their high school graduation present. And my son, Corey, chose... London, yeah, so that he could take his shoes off and walk across Abbey Road, and I could take his picture. Yeah, and he was in a band at the time. I forget what the name of the band was, uh, but he wanted to. He wanted to walk across Abbey Road. I would take his picture, and then we. Uh, he went and and uh, with a sharpie, put the name of his band on that wall. There's a like a block long wall where people just write the name of their band on there. Wow, do you have that picture of Corey? Yes, so I would I, like to use me. it in the it's video. It's the Smithsonian. Oh, yeah. I see. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that was that was a treat. I mean, that place has this awesome aura about it. And then we spent too much money on a guitar. We had to buy a guitar. London brought it home so it was oh, cool. well he got really good he got to a point where I said hey Corey um do you already know more than me and he was so sweet but he went yes <laughs> <laughs> well now he's teaching his own son his own son has electronic drums he's seven oh. and so he and he and Corey jam and it's all because of you right in this house I can hear the noise now it's right just here. beginning to settle down Rich Rock Studios I know here here we go <laughs> All right, my offering this week, Wheezy, is a film playing only in theaters called Babylon. This is Damien Chazelle's follow-up to La La Land. It's also the polar opposite in its attitude about Hollywood. La La Land was a Hollywood through fuzzy, warm filters. Babylon ain't. Babylon basically reveals the exploitive nature of the film industry and how it affected society in the film industry's early years. The time period it chooses is the Roaring Twenties, when silent films were dying out and the talkies were bursting onto the scene. A Mexican immigrant named Manny arrives in the United States, he's an aspiring filmmaker, and starts his career by working odd jobs on silent film sets. He eventually climbs the ladder to become a studio head and then heads down the other side of the ladder with some great acts of (laughs) self-destruction. Margot Robbie plays Nellie Leroy, a rough-edged New Jersey girl who becomes Hollywood's it girl in transition to the talkies. Brad Pitt plays a benevolent but troubled film star, Jack Conrad, probably fashioned after Errol Flynn. Jean Smart plays a really interesting character. She's a gossip columnist who, like others of the time, had way too much power in Hollywood. This movie is really polarizing among fans and reviewers. It can be brutal in its depiction of the no-boundaries Roaring Twenties. There's enough cocaine used in this movie to put a drug cartel on the New York Stock Exchange. (laughs) There are battalions of writhing naked party people. There has to be a separate union for nude extras, and they used all of them in this movie. From what you read about the era in America, (laughs) inside and outside the film industry, the way it's portrayed is probably not much of an exaggeration. Plus, keep in mind that this was all before the 1930s in the film codes, which we talked about on this show a while back. It was the Wild West, literally and figuratively. There There are some very raw scenes. It is long. It's three hours long. I happen to really like the movie. At the very least, you take away some very interesting film history. The acting was amazing, especially Margot Robbie. She's gotten a Golden Globe nomination. I smell an Oscar nom, too. There are wonderful speeches about the film business and stardom. In particular, Gene Smart's Hedda Hopper-esque character very casually explaining to Brad Pitt's character why his career is over. It's really good dialogue, and the cinematography is terrific. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It can be raw, but it was a good movie. Did you check 
into rehab afterwards? <laughs> I felt like it. I got a contact high from cocaine. I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> but anyway, here we go. Our first guests, and we're so happy to have them here today, are Annie Yancey and Jess Thomas, who have done a touching film entitled God and Salsa. Annie Yancey worked in the healthcare industry for years. She's been certified as a domestic violence support group facilitator, also a family-to-family support group facilitator, and she used her knowledge in this movie. In 2017, she ingested a short film called Love Always, which was nominated for five awards at the 168 Film Festival, and was also nominated for most inspirational short at the 2018 International Christian Film Festival. Jess acts and directs. He played a detective in one of my favorite movies of all time, L.A. Confidential. He wrote, directed, and edited a B-action movie called Checking the Gate. He also did The Seeker, a documentary that won Best American Documentary at the Rome Film Festival. He co-wrote, directed, and edited Forever and Beijing Girl, Made in China. Jess and Annie Yancey have recently collaborated on God and Salsa. Spoiler alert, both God and Salsa are pivotal to the plot. Sensitive and very inspirational, the story is that of a grieving therapist who's determined to help a suicidal teen, and she regains her faith in the process with the help of a pastor and a dance instructor. Nice to have you guys here. And you've been sitting in the same chair for 45 minutes and start, <laughs> and you're not arguing. I want to ask you one question. <laughs> so happy to see you. I'm happy, happy to see here. you, Annie Yancey, and I hope you and Weezy will get into your uh, backstory of uh, knowing your son and so forth. But a running theme in your movie is the biblical verse from Ecclesiastes. So tell me what that verse is so people know what we're talking about. Well, the verse is what it is. It, it, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. It's a short version. There was a famous song in the, in the 60s, uh, Turn, 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 which is actually that very, that very Bible verse from Ecclesiastes. And we just thought it was uh, so appropriate for the film because that's, in essence, what a lot of the film is about. It's about recovery from mourning and from tragedy. And how do you do that? In our case, in our film and in our experience, in our life experience, we we did it through faith and through, and in Yancey's case, through dance. And it can be it can be exercise. It can be a number of different physical activities that keep your mind and body occupied and detract you from whatever depression or suicidal ideation you may have. Mm-hmm. Well, your film explores many important themes, in- including suicide, depression, divorce, narcissism, parental alienation, healing, parenting, and of course, God and salsa. So what? how much of this is based on personal experience? Well, um, I went through a very difficult pe- period in my life. Um, and even though there's a lot of personal elements in the movie is not autobiographical. Um, After I went through that difficult time, there was this desire in my heart to do something to help other people that are facing the same type of problems. And as a woman of faith, I prayed about it and uh, for a long time. And this documentary idea kept popping in my mind. So I ignored that because I didn't think I was to be capable to do um, documentary, um, but it wasn't until this idea became louder and louder that I finally surrounded her and I said, okay, God, if this is really you, um, you're going to have to lead me and guide me because I have no idea how to start. Um, one particular Sunday, I went to church and they announced this event um, hosted by the entertainment business in, uh, ministry, and I felt led to go. And Imagine, I was thinking maybe somebody can give me some guidance in how can I write a script or what is the best uh, software that I can use to do so. And I walk into this room totally intimidated, surrounded by beautiful people, actors, writers, directors, and me. So I ended up sitting next to Jess. Not one of the beautiful people. (laughs) You know what, though? Your, your, uh, your professional experience, Yancey, must have informed your writing because there's some real wisdom and knowledge in there. And you can tell you've had some background in uh, psychological uh, uh, work a little bit. So that must have helped in the writing of the script. It, it did. It did. I guess life credentials teach you a lot. 
and how you handle um, pain and suffering is also the biggest teacher in life. I believe. And we also we uh, we interviewed some amazing people. Sharon Absolutely. Dunas, who was the former president of the, the West Coast or the West Side of NAMI. Uh, and that was mind blowing because, you know, I I'd gone through a lot of the, the Shane character is has a lot of elements that I went through. I went my parents went through a horrible divorce and I was just a lost and acting out in every possible mm. way for 30 years, probably. But when I, when we sat and interviewed Sharon Dunas, you know, we did it on tape. We had several questions that we, we wanted to get the therapy thing right. Yeah, And he has his experience, but we wanted to go above and beyond. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that interview, I, I said, Sharon, where were you when I was 10, 11 years old? Mm -hmm. You know, you would have saved me from going through 30, 40 years of just uh, acting out, dr drugs, alcohol, bad relationships because of a few true truism truths that uh, that she gave us in that interview. Well, I, I need to go back to the moment Annie Yancey sits down next to you because I am a romantic. So let's <laughs> let's hear that moment from your perspective, Jess. Well, it, it was very, very uh, lovely experience. And, you know, we believe it was divine. And, and the reason is I was going through hell in my life at that time uh, prior, maybe a year prior. And I was, you know, I'd gone through a horrible divorce and I was hitting the bottle and I was going off the deep end. And, you know, I was, you know, I was always had faith, but I wasn't really you know, a practicing Christian per se. But I, I was, we, we, I had gone to Bel Air Pres a couple of times, Bel Air Presbyterian a couple of times, and I thought it was a pretty nice church. So I said, look, I'm either going to go, I'm going to go deep or I'm going to lift myself up. So the way I thought about lifting myself up was to go to church. And, and, and I, it, it did. The pastor at the time was Mark Brewer and he was fantastic. He was funny. I, I went out, I, I would leave, you know, feeling really, charged and uplifted. And yet again, the same thing. I heard about the entertainment business uh, uh, luncheon that they had. They do it, do it once a month. It was called the Beacon. And they would invite like a Ralph Winter or somebody who was a member of the church that was in the entertainment business. And so I went, I said, you know, why not? Why why not go? This should this could be fun and I could meet some people. And and I sat there and and we met. And it was great. And I just I loved her idea because I had gone through it. She'd gone through it as a parent and I'd gone through it as a child. So there was no attraction in the beginning. But we said, well, let's get together in a couple of weeks. And then <laughs> we met at a coffee shop and we were standing a in line. reaction attraction. I've been through that before. <laughs> it, it, something hit us both at the same time because uh, we were in line and the barista goes uh, next. She goes, oh, you're together. <laughs> And, and it was it was prophetic because pretty much from that time on we have been and it evolved into a, a love relationship and a marriage. We got married back in 2016, and and so this project is is been so beautiful for us in so many ways. Very cathartic for both of you for different reasons. Yes. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what really touched me about this was something that touched my life because I was divorced and I had two kids and Wheezy went through that period of time with me, and that is the guilt. The children feel when their parents separate the, the letter at the beginning of your film that that young woman writes to her mother describes it perfectly. She felt that her heart was being split into two separate parts. And I thought, wow, that's just a great description of what every child goes through, because until they're old enough to sort of um, intellectualize it, they feel guilty for everything, even stuff that doesn't even involve them. So I was really moved by that. Yes, um, it's very difficult for children, the impact that they they receive and how they interpret the all this pain that's going around them. Um, blaming themselves is, is a very normal uh, reaction, um, it, it, but it depends on how parents deal with it and how they co-parent uh, co that will help the children deal with it. Uh, unfortunately, in most of the cases, parents do not get along, and there's a lot of a lot of unnecessary stress um, given to the children in the middle of all the situations. So the goal for our film is to bring awareness and how can we avoid those mistakes? Mm -hmm. We all make mistakes, but we can we can try our best 
to help our children to go through this process and making sure that they don't feel guilty about it. And it's so it hard. does lead to suicide. It does lead to um, drugs and alcohol abuse. Um, because, you know, at that age, the, when you lose a secure attachment with yes. a parent, either of, either of them or both of them, you lose something really big because th this is your confidant. This is your mentor. This is your everything that, that, that's raising you and showing you how to become a man or a woman or, or yeah. wh whoever you are. And if you lose that, you, you know, you start to look for attachments anywhere. In my case, it was through bad relationships or drugs through whatever means I could find to self-medicate. And, you know, I was just a, a completely a, a mess. You know, and so were my parents, but they were wrapped up into their own stuff. I think if they had known a few simple truths that that are in our film, a lot of grief for a lot of people could have been avoided, I think, really, it's, truly. It seems like a, a lot of people want a simple answer to a complicated problem. And mm -hmm. they do that by saying, I'm all good, so the other person must be all bad. My children are all good, the other person must be all bad. And then you infuse your children with that um, story and they take it in because they're too young to know otherwise and if they're ever you know having fun at the other parent they feel guilty and you know you have to be willing to say to your child i want you to have fun at dad's that would right. make me so happy but no people don't know how to do that because they're in so much pain and one of right. the things that you you guys bring out in your film is that narcissism and you know she writes on her pad she sees she hears it like instantly she's she's intuitive she writes it on her pad and that the moment her son stands up to her she has to paint him as all bad like she doesn't have any kind of gray area she doesn't have the ability to see shades of gray that's true and that's an extreme case there are also there's you know they're, they're, they're all it's all over the spectrum you have different mm -hmm. mild cases sometimes you have both parents that are narcissists or, mm -hmm. or mild narcissists so it's all over the map but i thought we thought that, you know, we'd experienced certain things in our life and other people have too. We really wanted to map it out as, as an extreme circumstance to show it very clearly in this in, in this film. Uh, same thing with the suicide. We wanted to go all in with that. I, I was on that spectrum. I never I never got to the point where I figured out how I was going to do it, but I was so close so many times. And and what what makes you go? Sometimes it's a chemical thing. Sometimes, in my case, it's the situational a divorce thing. But but it's something that we had to deal with. And there was a story about why also with. And I also was there, by the way, when I was going through a lot of complications and, you know, being Christian and feeling suicidal and thinking about it, it was it, it, it was rough to deal with all that. However, in my journey of healing and trying to learn and educate myself, I went through, uh, I went to support groups. I met a lot of people that are going through the same process. Unfortunately, uh, one of my friends did commit suicide um, because of battling uh, custodies and, and never ending issues. And that really hurts, you know, and when we had this desire in our hearts to help people, everybody that has gone through these particular situations was an inspiration for us. You know, back to Wheezy's point about the lady that you're talking about, the narcissist, there was another idea that resonated with me, too, about that same issue. Uh, she, being the teenage boy's mother, doesn't really think her son needs psychiatry, and mm -hmm. she shuns it off in the hospital, and I thought, that's a thing of narcissism, too, where my son couldn't be crazy. You know what I mean? It's, she, also, she was sort of subconsciously making it about her and not about him. Or is she afraid of therapy because he may reveal too much? Yeah, my mom's the source of all my problems. It could be that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I, that resonated with me as well. Yeah, I, I think I think you're both right on 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 all of that. And, and the, the, the uh, yes, it, it's all about her and it's all about how people perceive her, you know, and there are there are a lot. We again, when we talked to Sharon and, and, and also uh, Lloyd, Davis. Lloyd Davis was another great therapist we talked to uh, people. This whole stigma with mental wellness has got to go because it's just it, people have, you know, break an arm, people, you know, get the flu. People suffer from mental 
illness as well. And it could be a brain, you know, chemical thing where they need a drug, or it could be the circumstance that they're in, but we shouldn't stigmatize it. And and that's what we're, we're the message in that is that we're, you know, in that care through that character is that she's, oh, you know, she, my, my kid's not crazy, you know, mm-hmm. but so we wanted to really go over, you know, make that an obvious point. Um, in the film well it's a great film and i think regardless of what your faith is uh there's a lot to be taken away from this uh and one is that spirituality and physical activity are great antidotes to depression and uh it's beautifully done and well thought out and it's a pleasure to talk with you guys about it where can people find your film so it's uh, it's on most streaming platforms. It's on uh, Amazon Prime Video. It's on Apple TV. It's on Vudu, Google Play. It's on YouTube. Um, it's it's right now. It's in what they call the TVOD window, which is the VOD where you pay. It's like four bucks to see it. Uh, later in April, it'll be released. I think on more streaming platforms and and you know advertising platforms as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining guys. us. Give Thank give you. my love to Clyder. I love that boy. Thank you. <laughs> he loves you too. And you guys are such an important part in his life. Um, he's 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 an amazing he, kid. Anna Yancey and Jess Thomas, great filmmakers. Happy New Year, guys. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. Thanks Happy so New much Year. for having us. Of course. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Our next guest is Dr. Logan H. Westbrooks. Dr. Westbrooks has had a 50-year career as a music executive, working at CBS Records, Mercury, Capitol Records, and others, including his own label, Source Records. He's also a very successful music entrepreneur. He's been in the business brains behind 50 gold records and 25 platinum records, an assortment of those sitting behind him right here during this interview. He worked with Sly and a Family Stone, Santana, Earth, Wind & Fire, Ronnie Dyson, Ramsey Lewis, Johnny Mathis, and others. He's also an ordained minister. He's co-written a really interesting book, particularly if you're a huge R&B fan like I am. It's about the rise of the black music industry, the power that comes from black entrepreneurship and other related topics. The name of the book is Power 101, The Harvard Report, Soul Music, and the American Dream. We're so honored to talk to you today, Dr. Westbrooks. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us what the Harvard Report is and how it started. Uh, The Harvard Report was a study that was conducted in 1972. And it was commissioned by CBS under the auspices of uh, Cly- uh, Clive Davis and Bruce Lundvall. Bruce Lundvall, who was the VP of marketing, whom I reported to. And he came up with the idea to conduct this study using some students there at the Harvard, the, the B school students, as a project. And they took it on. I was a liaison between CBS and Harvard. And I worked directly with those students in guiding them and conducting that study. And the result of that study was called the Harvard Report. Basically, it was a blueprint. It was a blueprint for penetrating the black music marketing and also the intentions of dominating black music and black artists. That was the purpose. And what did what did the study come to mean? And how I. I from reading your book, you cite you just get into the facts, but it seems that the study has become controversial for reasons that time presented. Can you talk about that a little bit? It it, it has been. Uh, some say that it was somewhat of a blessing in disguise, and others take the opposite view. Uh, as a result of that study, uh, it was determined that the black music it was a viable market. It was something to pursue, and, and as a result. CBS expanded, expanded uh, their black music marketing division. And as a result of their success, all of other major labels did exactly the same thing. They created black marketing divisions. And what that eventually led into the hiring of more than a thousand uh, black male and female executives in the music industry. Wow. Well, um, soul music, uh, was more mom and pop business in the 50s and, and then in the 60s and 70s became more corporate. 
So talk about the transition. I mean, you had Stax records in the, and, and uh, Chess records in sort of mom and pop, and then they got national distribution by going with CBS and Atlantic Records. Talk about the transition between the mom and pop stage of African-American music and the corporate stage. Well, the, the, the mom and pop store, that, that really relates to the retail outlets, a little mom and pop uh, stores. As an example, when I was a salesman at uh, for, for Capitol Records in, in Chicago, Illinois, we had dozens of mom and pop stores. Uh, actually, uh, just a husband and wife team that just opened up a little storefront and they sold records out of their storefront. And those were called mom and pop shops. And when I became a salesman, it was my responsibility to work directly with those mom and pop shops and also show them how to uh, get on uh, open account status, which means that they can order directly from the manufacturer, they can get a much better price, and they also get co-op dollars to do advertising. And that was one of the things that I did on a regular basis when I was a salesman there in Chicago. And the buck of my accounts was on the south side of Chicago, a few on the west side, and to complete my complete uh, territory, I also had quite a few of uh, pop and uh, classical uh, retail outlets for record stores. Now, um, you're a talented kid growing up in America, but you talk about the experience of being black in America as being homeless but connected. And what would you want white folks to better understand about the challenges and the responsibilities faced by black Americans? Because I feel like even if we deeply care, we still have no clue. Well, uh, again, dealing with the, the, the racist nature of the country, that's just the way that things were set up and things were completely separate. Uh, that even led over into uh, radio stations where you had the pop radio station and you had the R&B radio station. And the pop stations, uh, known as Top 40, only played white artists. And the R&B stations only played black artists. And then from the standpoint of marketing and sales, it became a question of how can I, as a representative of a black record division, cross my records over to Top 40? <laughs> And of course, from a marketing standpoint and a sales standpoint, it behooved me to get my records crossed over. Reason being, on the black radio station in every market throughout the entire country, the black station was on the far right-hand corner of the dial. Every last one of them throughout the entire country. And as a result of that, that signal on the far right-hand corner of the dial was the weakest on the dial. So consequently- That is so fascinating. Wow. It's like redlining of radio stations. That, that was it exactly. Whereas, whereas, in the center of the dial, the strongest signal, all of your top four stations were located in the center of the dial. So consequently, I, as a record company executive, I, I want to get my records crossed over so they will be played on the top 40 stations reaching more and more potential buyers. That was that was my purpose, to cross those records over to the top 40 station. And you have a great anecdote in the book about sometime having to use muscle to get black acts played on top 40 stations, and that was the story of Motown. Barry Gordy had all these major hits on black radio stations, but top 40 stations, particularly in the South, would not add them. So Jerry Greenberg, put the pre- who, who was a media buyer, put the pressure on him, said, if you don't start adding these, uh, these records to your playlist, saying this to the top 40 stations, we're gonna stop advertising on your station. And that sort of opened the floodgates where they started playing Motown records and then you know so they had to use a little muscle to get in there exactly exactly uh-huh. that was the challenge between the top forty staff and the black r&b staff that was a challenge now that and, now, at your label they uh maybe it was at all labels but at your label in order to get to have the whole team at the label on board for trying to get this to cross over it had to get to um top five r&b correct that's correct that's it exactly yeah Mm-hmm. And so what were the challenges of reaching that threshold? 
Well, the challenge was, well, initially, uh, the the black motion managers were not allowed to go into the top 40 station. And the top 40 promotion managers were not allowed to go into the, the, the black station. So consequently, the, the line joined right there. Uh, as a black motion manager, I could only cover those black stations in my market. Mm. And even though I had records that I knew, I knew that it was a demand for those records on the top 40 side, but I was not authorized to go into the top 40 station. Then one of the procedures, uh, one of my methods of when I was there at CBS, uh, I went to the top 40 stand. And they told me, Logan, give me a top five R&B record. Give me that record, top, top five R&B, and then we in turn will take it over and get you top 40 play. Well, I gave them uh, top five records on many, many black records. They still failed to cross them over. Really? And that is why I had to start looking for other methods. Like? Like what? And one example of that was that I had a local promotion manager. His name was Bill Craig. And Bill Craig was based in Detroit, Michigan. And Bill was a friend of a of a program director at a top 40 station in Canada, which is just across the river from Detroit. And he persuaded his friend to program that record on her top 40 station in Canada. She programmed the record in which a number one. And as a result of that, then her sister station in Chicago picked up on the record mm -hmm. in the rest of so give us uh, give us some examples and also uh, if an artist, let's say Stevie Wonder, you know, if Top 40 got accustomed to a certain act, Earth, Wind and Fire or, you know, whoever it was, was the next record easier to cross over? Well, once once we got it had been determined that Top 40 will play some black records and the idea was to find out exactly what is it they're looking for and try and get them to program those records. Mm -hmm. Of course, Bachelor, you'd like to try and get them to program all of them, but they still, there were still some barriers there that we had to overcome. Then eventually all of those barriers were broken down. Yeah. It just became a matter of playing good records, yeah. not black records, not top 40 records, not white records, but just good records. Yeah. Well, well, your upbringing was Memphis, and it's probably not coincidental that you made your life in the black music industry because Memphis is one of the ground zeros of the greatest in black music. You had Stax Records down there that had all those wonderful artists, Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and, you know, uh, Booker T and the MGs. And what they were finding is uh, that white kids were listening to the black music stations in that town and so it was sort of crossing over against people's will so they got to a point where they they could not any longer ignore the white case in the purchase of black music exactly that was it exactly crazy now in your book you talk about a meeting where you mention that cbs is not infusing any money into the black communities that were making it rich and they thought you meant payola you meant scholarships, training, business investments, et cetera. Is this emblematic of the disconnect between white folks and black folks, or white folks just don't get it? That was it exactly. As a matter of fact, that seed that was planted then eventually led to CBS uh, hiring a vice president to deal with nothing but giving monies to certain projects in the black community. It's a guy named uh, Baron Taylor. And eventually, that was his 100% job, is to pass out monies uh, to different organizations in the Black community. Again, it was community involvement. And the way that that first came about was uh, when I, uh, I was the head of the division there at CBS. And I had a friend of mine uh, that was a, uh, we were colleagues in high school. And he was working for a national company. And this company that he was working for, he came up with the idea to sponsor the Black Caucus show in Washington, D.C. And this is the very first time that it was done in a major way. And he and I produced a show uh, as a fundraiser for the Black Caucus in Washington, D.C. 
and headlining that show was was Isaac Hayes and you and the Stacks Axe. Uh, Don Caniggas, a good friend of mine, he was the MC of that show. So it was a very, very successful show. And as a result of that, uh, they started doing that show on a regular basis every year. And it became one of the major fundraisers for the Black Caucus there in Washington, D.C. Again, again, we were emphasizing community involvement. That's what we were emphasizing. And the same thing even extended into on a local level. Let's take Chicago, for instance. If a black politician was running for office in Chicago, it was my responsibility to get my black artists to work along with that black politician so that when he or she would hold their rallies, that artist would be there to perform to attract additional people to hear what that uh, politician had to say. Right. And we duplicated that throughout the entire country because the, the local promotion managers and the regional promotion managers they were reporting to me, to my division, this was their responsibility. And we were duplicating this all over the country. Again, community involvement. And what you're describing is black entrepreneurship. And that, along with the black music industry, you have a great description of the whole motive behind that. And that was the search for freedom, which I thought was very profound, that uh, developing the black music industry and developing black entrepreneurship was the search for freedom so that uh, black business people were not beholden to the white industry for their success. Exactly. Exactly. And talk about the, the Congressional Black Caucus, because you you continue to remain involved with politics, correct? Yes, I did. And so what are some examples of maybe folks that you helped get elected or ways that policy... Uh, that policy I would say that the final major show that I was involved in was a fundraiser for Coretta Scott King in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And ironically, ironically, uh, that show was headlined by uh, Sly Stone. Ramsey Lewis was on that show. Maxine Weldon was on that show. Uh, the top acts at CBS at the tip of time were all on that show. And ironically, uh, Governor Carter was the, was the governor uh, of Georgia at that particular time, which is the first time that I had to, to meet him. Mm-hmm. And that entailed, uh, sort of included, brought, wrote, Governor Carter in to what CBS was all about. And then some years later, when he ran for president, he came to Los Angeles, California. And he was uh, looking to get tied into the black community and the black power brokers. And of course, at that particular time, I did not have the clout or the know-how to put that together. But I did have a very good friend, a guy named Clarence Avant, who's yeah. known as the Black Godfather. Yeah, I saw his documentary. And I yeah. put I put Clarence Avant with Jimmy Carter, and then the rest was history. Because wow. uh, Clarence Avant had all of the keys to every, every bit of it. I'll tell you, one of the appealing things about your book, Dr. Westbrooks, is there are so many little nuggets in there that sort of describe black music. And as being a lifelong fan of R&B music, it, I thought it was so powerful. And th- there's a passage in the book where you say black music is American uh, music, and it goes back to African tribal music, to the field hollers with the slaves, to the gospel of the black Southern church. And that church influence continues up through today's rhythm and blues. You discuss the gospel influence on soul. In your book, you call it The Holy Ghost Meets Commerce. And I just love that. Like Sly and the Family Stone was The Holy Ghost Meets Commerce Funk and Earth, Wind, and Fire. I thought that's just a great way to describe it because it all, you know, it's like uh, call and response music. And it's all the same going back to the black church. That's, that's it exactly. I uh, I come from and I grew up in the Church of God in Christ. And of course, uh, Sly Stone was influenced by the Church of God in Christ. And on, on the other side of the coin, on the gospel side, there's Andre Crouch, who was a product mm-hmm. of the Church of God in Christ. And listening to his music and his lyrics and his beat and listening to the beat of Sly Stone, uh, even some elements in uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire with Maurice Mike. It's all there. Those ingredients are there. So in my opinion, the influence of the churches, the Church of God and Christ in particular, had a direct influence on it. Of course, some would say that uh, 
let's keep uh, gospel music separate from secular music. I agree with that. But if you just listen to the beat, uh, some of it is almost exactly the same. Absolutely. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, that's that's another thing. I'm sorry, Weezy. This no, is just a topic that I love. Yeah, I love it. You know what you're talking about that that uh, disparity between uh, gospel and secular music has been a conundrum in the lives of many famous artists. Aretha Franklin fought with her father when she wanted to be a pop star. Um, Sam Cooke had to separate from the soul stirrers to become a pop star and alienated his family. And B.B. Um, uh, King has a great story, and he's, he's a neighbor of yours. He started in Memphis, Tennessee. He used to play in the street corners and say that I would play gospel, and then every once in a while I would throw in a blues tune, and even though everybody, all the adults considered blues the devil's music, I would get bigger tips playing blues music, so I would continue to play blues music and make more money. I just thought that was so funny. That's the division of commerce and art. <laughs> and ironically, you know, uh, this entire episode is so interesting. I was born and bred in Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm a product of Memphis. I'm a product of the South. And ironically, uh, I was born on College Street there in Memphis, Tennessee. And Stacks Records is located on the corner of College and McLemore. <laughs> uh, my grandparents also live in College Street. And but at one time, uh, I lived with my parents there in the Morton Garden uh, Public Housing Project. And the, the walk from that Morton Garden to Public Housing Project to my grandparents' home there on College Street, we passed that corner every time we walked through there. And that corner was College in McLemore, where Stacks Records was, was founded and located. Of course, it was a, uh, a white theater there at, at that particular time during that era. But eventually, that area, that, that area turned out completely to black. And ironically, I grew up there in Memphis, Tennessee. Had no idea that I would even end up in the music business. It was almost as if it was a fluke. Also, ironically, when I first started working in the music industry as a trainee at R.C. Victor in Des Plaines, Illinois, just outside of, of Chicago, and one of the artists that I was working with, was Elvis Presley. Most unusual. Hmm. Had no idea. Also, uh, Sam Cooke was on that label. So it was basically Sam Cooke and Elvis Presley, two of the artists that I worked very, very closely with when I was in that managing training program at RCA Victor there in Chicago. Wow. I don't. Do you believe in coincidences or do you believe in fate? <laughs> Well, I would say that I guess it was just, just, just a matter of fate. divine intervention. Yeah. He's a minister. We got to give him. Yeah. Now you talk a lot about. Yeah. Go better ahead. word, divine intervention. Divine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Because, you know, I had no idea that I would become so involved in the music industry. As a matter of fact, growing up as a child, I have uh, my siblings. I have three sisters and one brother, and all four of them were exposed to piano lessons, music. It was never even offered to me. and But I'm the one that ended up in the music business. Why wasn't so it offered it, to you? Why weren't you offered the lessons? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I guess it was a situation where my, my mother probably just felt that this, 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 this boy is not interested in music, that I'm not going to spend these few little dollars on him and giving him that training. So, so it was how- never even offered. Me. And of course, I never showed any interest in it. Mm. So, how, how, what's your pathway that, when you look back on it, that led you into the music industry? When did you first become? I, I, I guess you were a talented child, or I imagine you were a very talented child who showed a lot of promise in business and other areas in school. So, what led you? What was your the first interest that caught your ear? The music. Well, in growing up, I was always sort of uh, advanced in my studies and things such as that. I always was sort of at the very top of my classes, uh, grade school and even on through, on through high school. I was at, I was at the very, very top. Uh, but still, there was no interest in music. Uh, I was working and living there in Chicago, Illinois. And through the Urban League, I had heard about a management training program that was being offered by uh, R.C. Victor. And they suggested that I apply. And I did. 
and it was just a management training program. Now, in this management training program, you work through all of the areas of the company. And at the time, RC Victor, they were distributing whirlpool washers and dryers. Mm-hmm. They were distributing black and white television sets, which they offered to call the home entertainment centers. And they also were distributing uh, RC Victor records. So I'm working in the various areas of the company. And just ironically, uh, I asked the sales manager if I could have a pair of tickets to a concert that was at one of the major hotels downtown, a dinner concert. Recently married, money's in short. So this is an excellent opportunity for my wife and I to go out to a fine restaurant and for, and for a show. Mm-hmm. So when I asked him that, he said, oh, are you interested in music? Well, yes, I am interested in music. But my main concern was getting those tickets to go to that (laughs) show. So he said, why don't you work in the the record division next? I said, okay. That's what it came about. So consequently, I started working in the record division as a trainee and in and out of the various record shops and working directly with the record salesman there at RCA. A victory. That was the beginning of it. And in working with those salespeople and those honors, there was Presley and also uh, Sam Cook uh, out on the street. I, I had heard that there was a company that was looking to hire their first black salesman, which was Capital Records. So I applied for the job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I got it. That's when I started working directly at the retail uh, outlet, retail shops, in and out of record shops on the south side of Chicago and on the west side of Chicago. And also on uh, the far, far west side of Chicago, quite a few of the uh, top 40 and even classical record shops. But that was the beginning of it. It was almost like a fluke. I just stumbled into it. Wow. Meant to be. You said there was an irony in in um, in the black music industry, not necessarily the black music industry, but in the music industry altogether. After a period of time, uh, the white executives got comfortable with having white salespeople involved in the record sales industry, which sort of watered it down for the black salespeople that that business was meant to empower in the first place. So when the doors came down, when there was less... Um, um, I don't. I don't want to call it racism, but when there was, when there were fewer restrictions on white and black people sort of migrating back and forth between departments in the music industry, more white guys came into the sales department, which made for uh, fewer black salesmen. Am I getting that right? There was, a, was some mention of that in your book. Well, there was never, there was never a big influx. There was never a big influx of a uh, black sales never high. It was always on a very, very limited basis. As a matter of fact. I was very first there at the at, at Capitol Records there in Chicago, and then when I left the company, they had another black salesman behind me. But I don't know of any other black salesman anywhere in the country mm-hmm. that that young black guys are being hired as salespeople. It was still somewhat of a racist or a fighting. Well, one thing in the sales stand, you know, you make big dollars, mm-hmm. and it was just confined on the white side. And very, very few black people were allowed uh, through that door. There was a huge pay disparity between black and white salespeople in your business. There was a a huge pay disparity, right? White guys doing your same job were paid more than you were. That happened, well, since you mentioned that, uh, that was a position that I had when I was transferred to the home office at Capitol Records. I was, I was working in base in Chicago, Illinois, as the regional promotion manager. And I was promoted to the assistant to the vice president of marketing out of the home office in Hollywood, California. So the company moved my, my wife and I to Los Angeles, California. And I was working there at the Capitol Tower there in Hollywood. And my wife had befriended one of the uh, young ladies there whose husband was also in the same position that I had, only he was on the top 40 staff side. And through that association was when my wife found out that the two of us were doing exactly the same job, but there was a difference in our salary. 
So it was obvious that that was going on even then. And of course, uh, I raised the issue, something was done about it. But the bottom line is, it was unfair. But that's just the way that it was. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you talk about in your book, um, you refer to he who owns the railroad tracks. Tell me about how things have pro- progressed in terms of ownership and having agency in terms of where where the money deserves to flow and if it gets to flow there. Well, there's so many dollars involved uh, in this in this music industry, and of course, uh, one one of the major areas where big dollars are earned was on the executive producing side mm-hmm. of records, and the primary example of that. There's a good friend of mine, a guy named Rockin' Arnold, who started working right after I had moved out to the West Coast, and he was hired there at, at uh, Calvin Records. So we were both working there at the CBS Tower. And, of course, he had he gotten out of law school. He was, he was a lawyer, and he was working in the legal department, and he was privileged to all those different deals and what was taking place. And as a result of that knowledge, uh, he became the executive producer of a number of acts that he was responsible for bringing in uh, to Capitol Records. As a matter of fact, he was probably enjoying residuals from some of those artists that he signed even then. And then that led eventually, gentlemen, he transferred over to CBS Records out of New York. And he became the executive producer of the Jackson Five, of Michael Jackson's album. As a matter of fact, uh, the biggest album of seller of all time he is executive producer on that album. He's still earning big dollars from that album. Mm-hmm. So that was an area that had been closed to black folk for a number of years. And of course, fortunately for Larkin, he was on the inside. He saw what was happening. He was able to take care of it. A guy named uh, Lowell, Lowell Silas, that was uh, unfortunately deceased now. He was working for MCA at one time. And he was in as executive producer on some of the top-selling albums uh, over there. But that was an area that was close to black folk. You just, just didn't get in. You, you talk in the book about um, the mid and late 60s being the biggest change in black music. You had the death of Malcolm X, you had the death of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, the Vietnam War, the Tate Manson murders, the Monterey Pop Festival in Woodstock. How did the black music industry change? That was also the civil rights movement. And uh, so how did the black music change? I remember, you know, Sam Cooke's song, A Change Is Gonna Come, and the impressions with uh, People Get Ready, those particular songs. But how did the black music industry itself change during that time period? Well, uh, I'm example. I mentioned, as a matter of fact, this book, this book is, is, is dedicated to Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff and, and, and Tom Bell, who incidentally just passed just, just a few days ago. Uh, but if you take a listen to the kind of songs that they were writing, and one thing that uh, Kenny Gamble always say that there is a message in the music. And if you take a listen to the kind of songs that they were writing, things like uh, "Ain't No Stopping Us Now," uh, uh, OJ's would uh, sing uh, uh, about love and all those love songs that they were writing. Uh, Backstabbers, the love our laws. Uh, when will I see you again? Ain't no stopping us now. These we're were a winner by the impressions, <laughs> and these were the kinds of songs that they were writing. Mm-hmm. So they have the message in the music, mm-hmm. and which is why I disagree with some of the lyrics that a lot of the rappers have here right now, because what they're saying, their lyrics, there is a message in the in, 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 in the in the music. And if they are talking about gangster rap and killing and raping and abusing women and young people are listening to that, that's the message that they're receiving. Whereas back then, the late 60s and all through the 70s, when you were getting those messages, those message songs, these are the kinds of songs that they were writing. And this is what the young people were listening to and this is what they were adhering to. So there's a of hope. And the kind of music that was being written then and what's being written now. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, 
it'll start to change. See, Lois Tucker, years ago, was advocating the same thing. She had a big fight with the, the, the rappers at the very beginning because of the kinds of lyrics that they were writing. Right. Sometimes it's it's shock value or just rage. I am, you know, it's it's hard to know. But you know, uh, you know, ever since slavery, messages were delivered via song. Sometimes right under the noses of the white people who owned the plantation, they would sing mm -hmm. to each other and communicate. And then, as you're talking about through the civil rights m movement, they're talking uh -huh. past the parents to the kids who are listening, even white kids like me and Fritz, who are hearing. This is what we want, aspire to, a world where things are more just. And uh, that's music should be a, message, a delivery system for hope and, and, good, and positive change. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the civil rights movement and, and artists and how uh, uh, Ron Luther King sort of adopted Aretha Franklin, but she just accompanied him and his different writers and things. And he took advantage of that and even Mahalia Jackson, she also was a follower of Martin Luther King. Again, that music, mixing the music with the politicians and the civil rights movement, movement and it became a success. They worked mm -hmm. hand in hand with each other. Mm -hmm. Dr. King used to call Mahalia Jackson the night before a big speech and have her sing a song to him over the phone, and he would be inspired by that, especially in the darkest hours of his life when his life was threatened every single day. It was really a touching part of one of the recent movies about him. Uh -huh. You talk, you touch a little bit about hip-hop in the book and how, you know, it, when kids were not not given any access to musical education, you know, hip-hop is something that they can sort of have access to creation uh, and, and give voice to their, to their thoughts and feelings and then become huge stars and then uh, infuse school systems with musical programs so that, ironically, even though there's sometimes not so much music in their work, they're actually paying it forward and putting music uh, educational programs back into schools. Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, how those other music programs were discontinued at the schools throughout the entire country. Uh, but, you know, people... Uh, they will improvise. And as a result of that, you know, these youngsters, they just start beating on the desktop and creating a beat and start coming up with lyrics, uh, rhymes, and, you know, which is the, the beginning, uh, the, the rap era. Uh, they had to improvise, and it was successful for them because you have your rap artists now today, they're making millions of dollars as a result of that. And then and using their power now to help bring up others and uh -huh. put it ingest musical programs back into schools so that, you know, because it's like interesting that even if they don't have the means, the music is going to come out of them. The thoughts are going to come out of them. They're going to create just on a desktop, as you said, everything is a drum, you know, and we all have a voice. We all have a message and we all need to move and uh, and create rhythm. And it's kind of like our heartbeat, right? So oh, tell us where folks can find your book and uh, and what else that you would like to share before we close. Well, the main thing is I suggest that one go out and purchase a book on Amazon, uh, bondsandnoble.com, uh, or even uh, loganwestbrooks.com. Uh, and it's all there for your use or your enjoyment. And from a historical standpoint, just get some idea of what was happening in music in the city. This, this is what was happening in the back room. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's all right there. And you'll find an interesting read. And of course, I have several other books that I have written, but I'm really concerned about this latest book here now. And for someone that has very no, had no knowledge of all of the music industry, you pick up all four of my books and walk away with that knowledge. It's really and an I, interesting book, Doctor. Book is... Your co-writer's name is Sky Trauber. Is that how he pronounces his name? That's correct. Okay. okay. He has, I just think this is a great way to close, Wheezy. He okay. has a great, you know, trying to describe soul music is one of those, uh, it's like mercury in your hands. It's almost impossible. But he has a great description of what soul is in your book. And I think uh. we should close with it. It's called, it, it, this is a quote, soul is love, no more, no less. Sometimes it's a soft love. 
Sometimes it's a tough love, no more, no less. Love is the ultimate power. No one in actuality wants to be tough. All human beings originate from the female egg. I thought that was such a beautiful expression. It just perfectly describes not only soul music, but any matters of the soul. It's, it's quite beautiful. Right. Yeah. It's a music named after what we are in essence, right? Can I beg your indulgence for a minute, Dr. Westbrooks? Yeah. Um, I've been a fan of black music all my life. Uh, uh, blues, R&B, soul, some of the less complicated jazz. And I wrote and performed a piece about a suburban kid from a lily white suburban Philadelphia environment. This is the Gamble and Huff neighborhood, Philadelphia International neighborhood, all those wonderful acts that you talked about, the Intruders and the OJs and Harold Melvin and the Blue Knights. And I was obsessed with black music. And when the Black Lives Matter movement launched, I wanted to record my feelings about the relationship with this music. And I would be honored if, if I could email you the link and you could take a look at this piece of material. Nobody's opinion would mean more to me than yours after having read your book. I think you'll like it. Would you mind if I did that? I'm putting you on the spot. I would love it. I would love it. I, 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 if I said this off the air, you could turn me down, but you won't turn me down when we're talking. <laughs> but I think you'll find it interesting. It's just it's called Race and Old White Guys, and I've had great response from it. Uh, I've been invited to talk about it in classes in African-American studies at Loyola Marymount University. I, I, I would just love to get your opinion of it, as good or bad as that might uh, be. LoganWestSignal.com. Uh, I'll do it, my friend. Thank yeah. you. Now we got to. We have to talk about the people that adore us, Weezy. And I screwed this up at the beginning of the show. Oh no, you're going to get it perfectly this time. Okay, here we go. This is a great uh, listener that we have who has a blog. His name is Gary Chalk, a and a column. A column. Okay, a column or a blog. What's the difference between a column and a blog? A, a column is a, in a printed newspaper. Is, a blog is d d digital. Yeah, I think they're the same thing. Okay, online. anyway, they're words on a page of one sort or another. Right. Here's his uh, blog. Frequently, Jan, I guess is his wife, uses the word step. If we were going shopping and she was waiting in the car for me, she would likely say, Gary, step on it. When I pull our car into the parking lot of one of those mammoth shopping outlet centers, when Jan gets out of the car, she will say, Gary, I have some serious shopping to do. Step out of my way. Wow. When we dance, it's, Gary, you're stepping on my toes. So yesterday, when I mentioned that I was going to use the step counter on my app on my iPhone, I expected Jan to say something like, that will be a step in the right direction, Gary, or begin with baby steps. Instead, she said, Gary, step aside. Can't you see I'm busy doing Wordle? Jan thought you'd be interested in my fitness. But I'm glad that we have, first of all, this is a, uh, a column that he does for retired people, mm -hmm. which resonates with me. And uh, Gary, we're so appreciative that you're a listener, you're a thoughtful guy, and we wish you luck. And now that we're, uh, we're doing this on our podcast, perhaps your, your uh, viewership will increase by dozens. I think Jan needs a 12-step program for kindness. <laughs> Good point. So here come your closing credits. This time I really mean it. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediapathPodcast, and our Facebook group is called MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating and review in Apple Podcasts using words like, for example, exemplary and monumental. <laughs> and maybe you could talk about us on social media, comment on our posts, and let your friends know just how much fun you are having with us here at Media Path. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our guests, Jess and Anna Yancey Thomas and Dr. Logan Westbrooks. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.